Thank you so much for checking out our podcast. We hope today's message encourages, inspires, and empowers you to follow after Jesus like never before. Before we get into today's teaching, I want to invite you to join us live at one of our services at any of our three campuses in West Virginia, or join us as we stream live online. For more information or to save your seat at one of our services, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. Now let's check out today's message. So we're going to start this week, and we're only going to get into chapter one of these four chapters of the book of Ruth. But before we do, I want you to open up in your phone, or we'll have it on the screen, but I want to encourage you to begin to bring your Bibles to church. What a novel concept about bringing our Bibles to church. Uh, And the reason I'm asking you to do that is because there's something about holding the text in our hand. We are of a unique generation, the past hundred years or so, um, that the Bible is so accessible right in our hands. There's something profound about holding this text, flipping through the pages so you can learn where the scriptures are and seeing them for yourself. Seeing a different translation than maybe is on the screen so you get a different perspective. I want to encourage you to open up your Bible if you have it, but if not, to read along. In John 15, these are the words of Jesus. We're going to start here before we go into the book of Ruth. I've been hanging out in John 15 for several weeks now. Um, And this is Jesus' red letter words. He says this, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. This is the phrase I really want to sit with today. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain. Can you say remain? Remain in me. He says, I'm going to remain in you. I'm not going to leave you, but I'm going to ask you not to leave me. I'm going to ask you, some translations say, to abide in me, to make your dwelling place in me, to stay with me. In verse 5, yes, I am the vine and you are the branches and those who remain or stay with me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, You could ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. We'll come back to John 15 in a minute. But I want to to introduce the idea today. The name of the message is Loyal Love. And we're going to ask the question, am I kissing or clinging? Turn to the person next to you say, are you kissing or clinging? And you're like, depends on what I'm kissing, right? We're going to talk about remaining clinging or abiding. So before we go into Ruth, I want to introduce this fascinating character. As I said, one of the most underrated books in all the Bible. She's unique because she is the only, she's one of two um, women that have a book of the Bible written for them. Esther is the other one, but the only Gentile woman that has a book of the Bible written for her. And so she's very unique um, in this story. And so actually, she's also the only woman or person thereof in all of scripture to be called virtuous. How many of you are familiar with Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman? And it starts, 
a virtuous woman or a woman of noble character who can find. And so even in the scriptures, we see that not very many people are called virtuous. So Solomon and his mother used to love to muse about this. His mom is who wrote uh, Proverbs 31, and she kind of muses, who can find a virtuous woman? If you can find one, her price is far worth more than rubies. She's hard to find. If you find her, hold on to her because there's not many like her. Solomon even teases this in Ecclesiastes 7.28. He says, Though I have searched repeatedly, I have not found what I was looking for. Only one out of a thousand men is virtuous, but not one woman. (laughs) I can't help but think this is a slight because he had a thousand wives. This is a slight to his wives. He's like, I married a thousand and can't even find one. There's something about this characteristic of noble character that not many people have. Now, in the Hebrew canon, the Hebrew scriptures, in chronological order, I think it's very interesting that Proverbs 31 is... Proverbs is listed, and then the next book in the chronological order of the Hebrew canon would be Ruth. So we'll end with talking about who can find this noble woman, and the only person in all of Scripture to ever be called that is right next door, the next book, the book of Ruth. She is a fascinating, beautiful, underrated character. I want to give you a little backstory about this family that she married into, how she came to be in the Hebrew Scriptures, and honestly, how she became into the lineage of Jesus. Did you know that this Gentile woman was grafted into the lineage of of Jesus, and so she is the grandmother of King David. So there's a little backstory, but starts out, and there is a family, and a Jewish man and his wife, Elimelech, and his wife Naomi, and there is a famine in Judah, and so they have to leave Judah to go to Moab because they heard that there was grain in Moab. So they leave with their two sons, and they go to this enemy nation. And so the people of Moab um, were considered um, pagan. It was considered an enemy of Israel. And so they're forced because of this great famine to leave um, the promised land of Israel and to go into Moab. And while they're there, um, Elimelech and Naomi's two sons marry two daughters. One is named Orpah and the other is named Ruth. And we think about 10 years go by, and both sons and Elimelech all pass away. Now just leaving these three women. You have Naomi, who is the Jewish woman, and these two Gentile women, Orpah and Ruth. And so all of this tragedy has happened. Both of her sons, Naomi's sons, die, and her husband. And we're in a very patriarchal society at this particular time. Widows had very little chance to survive unless someone would redeem them, take them in, and take care of them. They had no way. They were not educated. They had no way to make a living. And so they were very much dependent on other people. And so here is this very dire circumstance that we enter into when we um, first come into the book of Ruth. And we have these three women that now Naomi hears that Judah's famine is over and she wants to go back to her homeland. And that's where we pick up this story. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 7, we're going to start there. It says this, with her two daughters-in-law, she, Naomi, set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. So they're going back to Israel. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Now, these girls, Orpah and, Naomi, uh, and Ruth, would have probably been very young. Um, I would guess that they were 
probably not over the age of 30 at this age because they've been married about 10 years. Um, and back then they would get married very young. So maybe even as, as young as 25, 26 years old. So still a lot of life ahead of them. So they broke down and they wept together. Verse 10. No, both girls says, no, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear you sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised up his fist against me. And again, they wept together. And Orpah, this is a phrase we get our title from, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. I'm going to read it again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and to turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Do you understand why we called this loyal love? This is loyalty in a whole other level. Again, as a widow, the only choices women would have had when their husband died would be for someone in the family to have sympathy and to take them in or to remarry so that a man could take care of her. For her to stay with another widow, this is extreme loyal love. Some of us have trouble even inviting our mother-in-laws over for dinner. Can I get an amen? Don't really amen on that, right? Let's keep going in Ruth 1.18. says this, So the two of them continued on their journey, and when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited for their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. But she responded, Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made my life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Now, I want to notice a couple of things here, and before I give you the points and what this entails, I want you to understand that when Jesus resurrected from the dead, it says that he met with the disciples, and on a road called Emmaus, he began to take them through the scriptures, pointing out where he was in all of the scriptures. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures thinking you will know God, but what you don't understand is that the scriptures point toward me. Now, this story that we just read is very much a historical fact. It is not a myth, but I want to tell you the beauty of the scriptures and why you want to go to them for yourself is because they are very layered. Yes, this is a literal event but happened, but there's something called a type and a shadow. It's a pointing towards something bigger. It's a big picture and a little picture. So we can look at the details and know that this is a literal instance that happens. But if we pan out, we can see where God is using this individual story, like he does many stories through Scripture, to point toward Jesus. Can I tell you that every single thing, even in the Old Testament, is pointing toward Jesus. Jesus. It's pointing toward Christ. And so what I want to I show you today is the parallel, the symbolism, the type and shadow in this beautiful book. And I want to bring out this point, though, first, that Orpah kissed, but Ruth clung. Orpah kissed, 
but Ruth clung. Now I want to, to show you that Naomi's name, when she says, I used to be Naomi, she means pleasant or delightful. But she says, now my name is, don't call me that, call me bitter. That her life her circumstance was suffering and bitterness and heartache and trial. And that Ruth's name actually means loyal friendship. So the type that we're getting here, now I'll tell you about this next week. We won't go into Boaz until next week. But I'll go ahead and give you um, a spoiler alert that Boaz, who we'll meet next week, the family redeemer, is a picture of Christ. Naomi is a picture of the father. She's a picture of God. And here we have two types of women's life, two pictures of love, different types of love, different levels of love, two pictures of devotion here. You have Orpah who kissed, who would follow Naomi. Hear me. She was with Naomi when Naomi was pleasant. Do you hear me? But she kissed goodbye when following Naomi meant bitterness and suffering and pain. Are you still with me? This is a picture of following God even through the trenches of suffering. This is a picture of what it means to go with God on Friday and not just on Sunday. This is a picture of not just being a fair-weather Christian that says, God, I will go with you if you'll bless me, but God, I will go with you even if it means that I'm going to have to lay down my life for you. Are you hearing me this morning? This is a picture of following Christ through the trenches of suffering. This word clung right here in the Hebrew, it's to cling, to stick, to stay close, to cleave, to keep close, to stick to, to adhere, to abide. Abide in me, Jesus said. Abide in me. Stay with me. Cling to me. Hold on to me. I'm going to challenge all of us today to truly look at what the cost of following Christ is. The reality of following the Christ teachings that we see, these red letter teachings, to challenge our version of Christianity, which says, repeat after me this phrase and tack on God to my existing life and I will go where I want and God will follow me. This is not the picture that we see Christ preaching to the church we see Christ saying, no, you leave your life and you come and follow me. You take up my cross and you follow behind me even into death. You look at these two women and on the surface it seems that both of them love Naomi. It seems that, that they cried. They did not want to leave. It seems that both had some level of devotion. Some level of devotion, some level of love. You ever heard the song, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. And this is where we are with Orpah. She has an affection. She loves. She even cries. She doesn't want to leave her. I will do anything for love, but I can't do that. Reminds me of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, says, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. And Jesus says, you've done great. Now sell everything that you have and come follow me. And it said that he walked away sad. He wanted to, but he just couldn't give him that. And do we have an end point in our mind to suffer? Do we have an end point in our devotion or our loyalty to the Father? If he asks us for something, is there something in our life that I will do anything for you, Lord, but I won't do that? And the beauty of Ruth's loyalty and this loyal, the depth of her love 
is that she follows Naomi when Naomi had nothing left to offer her. She didn't follow her for love. She followed her from love. She clung to her. She clung to her. Again, I think we have many Christians who want to celebrate with Christ on Sunday at the resurrection but are nowhere to be found on Friday at the crucifixion. We love the taking part in the resurrection glory, but we do not want to be a part of the fellowship of his sufferings. That verse is attached to those, both of those things. Friday Christians, not just Sunday Christians. It seemed that both loved, but we don't get to define what love really is, do we? The scriptures already define that for us in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. If we truly love, we will endure through every circumstance. We will stay. We will abide. We will cling. Do you hear me this morning? If we truly love, then that love is going to be refined through the furnace of suffering. A true agape love is a staying kind of love. It's a clinging kind of love. It's an abiding kind of love. Can I tell you that loyal love is truly proven in times of suffering or disagreement with God. It's one thing to say we love him, but love is not a declaration. Love has to be proven. When you stand up here and you give vows, you exchange vows between husband and wife like some people will do soon, hopefully. It's a little slight to someone I tried to talk, to, talk into getting married the other day on a, on a hill with no one there anyway. But when you exchange vows between people, we say these things in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, good times and bad times, until death do we part. It is a lot easier to say those things, right, all the married, fam- all the married couples in the room. But guess what? You're going to have to live those things. Those vows will be tested. This is why when we renew our vows, usually there's more tears than when we first get married. Because suddenly having to say those vows when I now understand the cost and what I'm really saying to repeat these vows, again, our marriage vows will be tested and so were our covenant vows with Christ. They will be tested through the fire of suffering. Loyal love stays even in disagreement. I think about Job. He says this when his wife said, just curse God and die. You talk about a man who stayed with God through horrible suffering. And this is his response. You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Should we only take the good? He says, blessed the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. What faith this man has. Do you understand I didn't come to Christ for the benefits, Job is telling his wife. I didn't come to the Father for benefits and understand that Job did not agree with what God was doing. I mean, you see the rawness of his soul, the opening of his heart, begging God to help him understand But just because he disagreed, he did not disperse because he disagreed. He stayed through the disagreement, through the suffering. Now, I want to show you this picture of this tree that I have in my yard. Now, 
I live in the woods, and I have a back deck, and I love to sit on this deck. And you can see um, the trees from my window. I have a lot of windows in my kitchen. And this dead branch is the bane of my existence. I hate this branch. It taunts me. It mocks me in the morning hours when I make my coffee and I look at my beautiful view and then I just stare at this one dead branch that drives me crazy. And so I was out on my back deck about a month ago and I saw this branch and I'm just sitting there being aggravated at this branch that it's too tall for me to get rid of. It just taunts me again. And I felt like the Lord just spoke to my heart. You know, it's not always evident melody when a branch has lost connection when it's dead. You know, in the fall and in the winter, I don't really notice that branch so much. But when it's time to bear fruit, suddenly I can see every other branch on the tree just about is bearing fruit. Why not this one? Remember that here we have a tree. If Jesus said, if you sever from me, if you walk away, you cannot bear fruit. If I were to lob off one of these branches, can I tell you, it would stay green for a day or two, but then it's in the process of dying. The second it is severed, it is starting to die now. And there are many of us that if we examine our heart, we examine our life, we look at the fruit of our lives, it's really evident, if we're honest, that there's a connection problem. There's a connection problem. We aren't truly abiding in Christ, even for ourselves. I think another thing that the Lord really showed me is that some of us, we're not actually a branch connected to the vine. We're a branch off a branch that's connected to the vine. Any fruit we do have is only connected to someone else's fruit. And so the danger in this is if this person is removed from our life, maybe it's our pastor or our parent, if this person doesn't text us reminding us to come to church, doesn't ask us about our faith, doesn't challenge us, if this person maybe were to pass away, move out of state, or God forbid walk away from their faith, suddenly our faith is dead too because we were never actually connected to him for ourselves. And so there are seasons, though, when what's really going on is going to be revealed. And I believe as a body of Christ, we are coming into that season of revealing. In Revelation chapter 3, again, red letter words, Jesus is talking to a church. And he says this, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have, get this, a reputation for being alive. You're like this branch in the fall or the winter. No one quite notices. You can fake it until you make it. You have a reputation. Maybe you were alive at one point in time or had some fruit from someone else's life. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you what? Heard and believed. He is talking to Christians here. Go back to what you heard and believed. They heard it and believed it before. At first, hold to it firmly. Cling to it. Abide to it. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you and destroy you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. I'm sorry. I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Can I tell you that reputation does not equal reality? Just because those who are around you believe you to be in the faith 
it does not mean that you are actually in the faith. I know this is hard. I'm sorry. But reputation does not, so much so, do you understand how many parables Jesus told about the fact that the true Christians would be sitting among false Christians? It's all through scripture. The wheat and the tares, he says. That let the tares grow with the wheat. Don't pull them up or else you might pull up the good wheat. But in the end, the Lord will sort, the angels of God will sort the wheat from the tares. You think about the sheep and the goats. You hear me? You look at the bridesmaids, the ten bridesmaids. They're all supposedly waiting on Christ, but five have oil and five don't. That oil is significant of relationship. And then you have the branches. That he collects all the branches in a pile to be burned. I am asking you to examine the fruit of your life. And I'm not talking about do you preach and teach and do all these good things. Remember they said, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name, raise the dead in your name, do miracles in your name. Much of that most of us have not even done in this room. They were doing real works of faith. That's not the kind of fruit I'm talking about. What kind of fruit am I talking about? The fruit of the Spirit. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Not of me trying to be loving. Not of me trying to be joyful. Because a branch does not have to strive to bear fruit. If it's connected to the vine, it just does. It just does. Have you ever had a time in your life when suddenly something was awakened and you had joy, you didn't even know why you were joyful? You had peace that surpasses understanding, and you didn't even know how. This is the fruit that he's talking about versus the fruit of the flesh. Jesus said, look at the trees. Judge a tree by its fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. The works of the flesh, drunkenness and partying and revelry, slander, gossip, backbiting, sexual promiscuity. These are the works of the flesh, and I'm going to ask you to examine your secret life. I'm getting messy now. Because reputation does not equal reality. I'm talking about your private life when no one else is there. Is there fruit of the flesh or fruit of the spirit, guys? Examine. The Bible says to test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Because reputation does not equal reality. But I tell you something, that if we have a big storm at my house and the trees start shaking, guess which limbs are going to come off first? The dead ones. The storm of suffering reveals the level of loyalty. Do y'all hear me? Suffering, the shaking, and there will be a great time that is coming, and we are even at the door of great shaking and great suffering and great persecution. And I am telling you that many who claim Christ now, the Bible says there will be a great falling away. When we will see as loyalties collide with the cross of Jesus Christ, we will see the Lord will reveal who are his own. And it's through the, the furnace of suffering. This Christianity that Americans have adopted, I'll repeat this magical phrase, show it to me in Scripture. Show me in Scripture. This is not how Jesus taught the gospel. Jesus taught the gospel with a sword that got him murdered. Those red letter words, I want you to imagine for a moment that Brandon or I came up here and we read the red letter teachings of Jesus with no commentary. We would be called narcissists, demon-possessed, too hard, 
because Jesus' words, they were so potent, so profound, even so divisive. They were so real that people who heard them either hated Jesus or loved him. And he says this, woe to you if everyone praises you and the crowds praise you and don't speak evil of you. Because they did the same thing to the false prophets. Why don't we get persecuted more? Because we're not really teaching Jesus' teachings. Because when we really call people to what Jesus did, to radical following of him, it gets messy. The furnace gets hot. And I wonder if we actually have a true a healthy self-awareness. I think about Peter as I think about this and Peter's self-awareness. Peter thought he loved God. He thought he would never deny Christ. Jesus says, all of you are going to desert me. Friday is coming and all of you are going to desert me. And what did Peter say? Peter, they may all do this, but not me. I'm, I'm, I'm your guy. I'm your bro right here. I will not. They will. I, I will not. And Jesus can see what Peter cannot. He said, Peter, I'm telling you, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Not just once, but three times. Jesus saw something that was in Peter's heart that Peter could not see. And the cross was about to sift it to bring it to the surface. He says this in Luke 22. Jesus looks at Peter and says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded for you, Simon. That your faith should not fail so that when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brethren. What did Jesus know that Peter didn't know? What did Peter need to find out about his own heart? And I have to ask this question. It does seem like Peter had some sort of love. He believed that he loved Jesus. He wasn't just saying, no, not me, because he brought a sword to that garden. You remember this. When he lobs off the high priest's servant's ear. He had terrible aim. I guarantee he was not going for the ear. He was a fisherman, and so he's trying to be a soldier, and he goes at it like Peter does, and he just starts swinging, and he lobs off the ear, and then Jesus has to clean up this mess, right? So what happened between the point of lobbing off the ear to denying Christ? Because he said, I will die for you. Obviously, he was willing to do something. He lobs off the ear. Something happens between that point when he had this fearless courage to denying him three times. And I think we get a, a clue earlier on in the story Long before this in Matthew 16, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. Now I say to you, you're Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Good job, Peter. Correct, Peter. Pat on the back, Peter. Peter's feeling really good about himself. And in the very next breath, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly. Can you say, tell his disciples plainly? Just say that out loud. Tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of elders, leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand the Son of God, y'all. Heaven forbid, he says, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Here's where we find out the clue of what happened between the lobbing off of the ear 
and the denying of Christ. One minute you're a rock, the next minute you is Satan, right? This is what happened in this little encounter. What happened? We reveal where Peter's end point was. At this point in the garden, when Peter breaks out that sword, he is convinced that this is the conquering Messiah. He is going to come and restore Jerusalem. He's going to reign as the king like David, and he's going to bring all of Israel back to prosperity. That's what Peter believes, even though Jesus had been trying to tell him. Once Jesus pulls that ear up off the ground, puts it back on his head, he looks at him and he says, do not do this. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. In other words, this is not how my kingdom works. I don't work with a sword, I work with a cross. When, G- when Peter realized, oh, this is a suffering Messiah. This is a crucified Messiah. Suddenly, Peter, what was Peter afraid of? He was, he was okay with Christ. He was not okay with, okay with a crucified Christ, with a suffering Messiah. And he had to be tested. He had to be sifted through the cross. The cross was sifting them. I love that it says, though, I never noticed when Jesus tells him this, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. It wasn't just Peter. It was each of them. The cross was getting ready to throw every disciple in the sifting process, the refiner's process. It wasn't just Peter. All of them were being sifted and refined through the crucifixion. Now, I want to bring you one more parallel in the book of Ruth before we close today. And this one blew my mind when I really saw it. And this is Orpah. Remember, we're talking about two ladies here. We're talking about Ruth and Orpah. Loyal love. But is Orpah's name, does she stand for something? Does she mean something? And I think she does. Orpah's name in the Hebrew means gazelle. But the root word means neck, back of the neck of a fleeing foe, someone who's taking off and running. Stiff of neck, obstinate apostasy. Apostasy. This is profound. Because Orpah wasn't the only one who kissed someone goodbye at the end of their devotion. In that garden, someone else kissed Jesus on the cheek. Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He loved him. Can I tell you that, that Judas did not know he was the betrayer? None of the disciples knew that he was the betrayer. Only the suffering of the end point of the cross revealed what was really in Judas's heart. I know this because you don't give the betrayer the money in the group. Judas was the accountant in the group. You give the most trusted person the money, right? And at that table when he says, someone's going to betray me, they all say, is it me? Is it me? Even Judas, is it me? He did not know what was truly in his heart. He had been lying to himself about where his loyalties were long before when he's watching Mary break open that alabaster box. And in his heart, he's thinking, really? We could have sold this and given it to the poor. He's so obsessed with money, his end point was money. So he frequently took some off the top and pocketed it for himself. Something was going on in his secret life that was now being revealed through the cross. This is a picture. If Ruth is a picture of the bride of Christ, and she is. We'll talk about this next, next week. She's a picture of the bride of Christ. And I'm telling you, Orpah is a picture of the apostate church. Orpah is a picture of the false church, the false Christian, that in the end days, that shaking is going to be revealed. Loyalty will be revealed. Remember that Naomi says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
and to her gods. But Naomi clung. Jesus asked Peter, and keys can come up. Jesus asked Peter before he goes up, back up to heaven. This is after Peter has repented. He's broken. I mean, the second he denies Christ, this is revealed in his heart. He's, it says he broke down and wept. I love Jesus' heart for restoration here. And he looks at Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Now there's something going on in the Greek here that you don't see in the English. He says, Simon, do you agape me? That's loyal love, clinging love, God-type love. And Peter says, yes, you know I friendship love you, phileo love you. Two different words in the Greek. Goes on, in verse 16, Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? He says, yes, Lord, you know I friendship love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said, verse 17. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question the third time, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. What's going on here? Suddenly, Peter has a better assessment of his own heart. He's not inflating his love for God. He's being honest with Jesus. You know, I, I friendship love you. I wish I did. I'm hurt. And Jesus doesn't condemn him. He meets him where he's at. He said, okay, I'm going to meet you. Do you friendship love me? You know, I think it's beautiful that in the time of revealing, the whole point is restoration, not condemnation. And in the revealing, Judas ran, but Peter repented. Judas did not have to commit suicide. He did not have, he could have gone back and repented like Peter did. But he ran from it, whereas Peter repented. Listen to what Jesus goes on to tell Peter. He says, I tell you the truth, Peter. This is after he says, phileo you. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do what you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then he asks him again the first question he ever asked Peter. Follow me. Suddenly, even though Jesus had been telling them this the whole time of his ministry, I'm going to go to a cross and die. It's necessary for me to go to the cross and die. I'm going to go to the cross and die. They didn't want to see it. And I see the same parallel in American Christianity. We don't want to see it in the scriptures. That's why we don't teach it. We skip those passages. Because we know what it will do to our crowds. We know what it will do to stand and to actually echo the words of Jesus. Instead of skipping and only highlighting the ones that really fit our American self-help Christianity. Do y'all hear me, please? But now, when forced to collide with the cross, that there is no Christianity without the cross. Taking up the cross and following him, now Peter could truly assess and count the cost. And Jesus is not mincing words. He said, Peter, you're going to die. And not just any death. You're going to be crucified. It's going to cost you everything. You're going to have to go where you don't want to go. And I love this because church history tells us he was not just crucified, but Peter in his final day said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. Turn that cross upside down. And he was crucified upside down. What he once was afraid of, can you tell me, at the, can I tell you at the end of his life, I, I have this sneaking suspicion that at the end of his life, 
He heard the Son of God say, Peter, you agape on me. That finally, this loyal love, Peter was able to stare down the barrel of suffering and say, I will not let you go. I'm not leaving you. I'm holding tight to you. Not just on Sunday, but on Friday. You're my God. Let nothing but death separate us. Do you hear me? This is the kind of commitment to Christ. This is what salvation is. In Matthew 10, Jesus tells us that in the last days, brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. Children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. That'll blow your mind right there. Your own children. All nations will hate you because you are my followers. This is what is coming for us. Let's not be so naive that we skip over all these warnings that Jesus was trying to give us. But everyone who endures, who abides until the end will be saved. Revelation 3 goes on to say, I am coming soon. Hold on, cling to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world. There is a shaking coming. There is a great time of testing coming to test those who belong to the world. But I love this in John 16. Right after the abide passage, Jesus says this, I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith, so that you won't run. I'm telling you in advance what it's going to cost. Remember when he called the disciples, he said, count the cost. What man, without first counting the cost, would go to build a building? Or otherwise, he'd build the building, run out of money, and it'd stand there half empty. Can I tell you, there are a lot of people who are bearing the name of Christ, but when you really look at them through spiritual eyes, it's half-built, unfinished buildings. Starting the walk of faith, but running because they haven't fully counted the cost. I am telling you, there is no coming to Christ without first counting the cost of knowing what we're getting into. He says, I'm telling you these things in advance so that you won't abandon your faith, for you will be expelled from the synagogues. The time is coming when those who kill you, listen to this, those who kill you will think they're doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, not if they happen, so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. This last verse I'm going to share with you and then we'll pray. Guys, I know this is hard. I'm sorry, you thought you were coming here getting a little cute message about Ruth. Can I tell you that Scripture says that your leaders are shepherds over your soul, watchmen over your soul? Before we're your friends, we're watchmen over your souls. The words, when Peter, the, I'm sorry, when the apostle Paul says this sacred trust that's been given to me, it says not many should be teachers because they would be held, held to a stricter judgment. And they're put the fear of God in my core. When I see, Lord, Lord, have we not? He says many. Have we not done these things in the name of Jesus? I never knew you, he says. To me, at the core, I think, as a teacher of Scripture, who let them believe this? Who let them believe this? If you do not hear me, this is love. This is love. This is love that implores you to examine if you are in the faith. Examine your life with the teachings of Scripture. Count the cost. It says, I tell you the truth. 
Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. This means there has to be a total collapse of your old life. He's not a tack-on addition. He's not a cute add-on, a total collapse of your life. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. But those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. What does it mean to follow Christ? To stay with him, to be where he is, not to ask him to come where we are, to follow him. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past messages. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and share. For more content, to connect with us, or if you'd like to support this ministry by giving, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. We love you and have a great day.